episode, we have a man that we all know and love, not just for his infectious smile, but his never-give-up attitude. He can lift a car. He has completed two full Ironman events, and this person has had us glued to our phones for three days while he took on the mammoth task of completing the Australian Ultraman. With no further waiting, we'd like to welcome Kevin Hepburn. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to jump on the podcast with you guys. Um, so today we're going to look at Kevin's earlier life uh, leading into, as we know, his strongman competitions. I'd like to have really delve into his strongman um, competitions and things like that. He's leading into the two Ironmans he did and actually him getting into triathlon. And then we'll spend a little bit of time talking about his Ultraman. So, Kev, would you like just to uh, start from the beginning? Where were you born? Tell us a little bit about your early life and the sorts of things that you did as a child and sport like that. Yeah, no worries, Anthony. So, I uh, grew up and I was born and raised in a small country town called uh, Maui, Newborough. So, I was born in Maui and grew up in a suburb next to Maui, two and a half kilometres away, called Newborough. So, uh, I like to differentiate those two towns because if you lived down there, you never really labelled yourself as a Maui boy if you lived in Newborough and it was vice versa the same. So grew up in a small town. I think there was about um, 16,000 people that lived there when I was born uh, and spent the, pretty much the first 27 years of my life down there. Um, yeah, so grew up two older sisters. Uh, one, Joanne, she was five and a half years older than me and my sister, Belinda, was two and a half years older than me, so I was the baby boy of the family. Mum and dad um, owned their own businesses, worked seven days a week and uh, tried to do the best to look after three kids while running two businesses at the same time. Um, Sport-wise, got me into sport from a pretty young age. I think I started playing basketball uh, from six years old, started little athletics like every other kid does back in the 80s. Um, As soon as you hit school, so I was in little athletics from, I think, grade prep or grade one, and then started junior football uh, as, as early as I could, which was the under-11s, I think, back then, uh, for the Newborough Hawks. Um, yeah, so that was where I grew up. That was where I started in all my sport and pretty much um, stuck at those sports, athletics, uh, football and basketball, all up until I was 27 years old. Uh, let's talk about your early sporting. So, you're quite a good athlete. I think a few people don't fully understand that you were a state champion for the 100 and 200. Is this correct? That's right, yeah. So I was always uh, known for my sprinting capabilities. I was fast at um, the 100 and 200. And funnily enough, I was actually uh, the state champion in the under 11s or 12s for high jump back in 1991. So for people that have never met me, I'm only five foot seven and a half. And I won the state championships at Olympic Park in Melbourne. And I supermaned over the bar. So I didn't even go over backwards. I went over front ways and uh, won the state championships. <laughs> I think I was 10 or 11 or something like that. But, um, yeah, so won the state championships, 100 metres. <laughs> what happened? You never, you, you didn't grow up? No, I think I was at my full adult height by 11. You must have been tall when you were young because you played basketball quite at a high level as well. Yeah, I actually was never tall. I was just, uh, I had a really good leap. I was explosive in um, running and I could jump. So I had quite a quite a high vertical jump. Even at five foot seven, I could slam dunk two hands um, 
off one step. So I, my vertical leap was probably my biggest attribute in basketball. Uh, it was a, a quite a good um, card to pull out on the court when people thought that they were manning up on somebody short and then I would just jump over the top of everybody and grab the ball most of the time. Even in football, I used to get I get a lot of uh, in-the-back penalties paid against me because they couldn't understand how I could come up so high behind somebody and take the ball. They thought I must have been climbing them, but I was actually just jumping. Um, so, yeah, had a really good vertical leap. So you stayed in Maui and oh, where you come from for till you were 27. Did you move into Melbourne or what happened there? And talk a bit about because you've had some interesting jobs, I know, um, especially one you had when you were 17, which I <laughs> – People won't believe it, but it's actually a really interesting sort of job. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I lived in Murray up until I was 27. I had a couple of little ventures out. I moved to, I think when I was 17, I moved, or 18, I moved to Brisbane uh, to live up there for just over two years. I thought I'd try it up by myself, but came back to Murray. It's a, it's a funny thing when, um, if you've ever lived, when you've ever lived in a small country town, or especially Murray, Newborough, a lot of people never really leave. Like some of my best friends from my whole life are still down there now and they have no intentions of leaving. So uh, you don't really look outside your bubble, your little country town bubble until until you get out and adventure and you think, what have I done? What have I wasted so many years down in this small country town? There's nothing actually there. Um, But, yeah, so when I was 17 years old, I got a job. Um, There was a job applied or offered in the newspaper and they were asking for 10 um, people aged between 17 and 24 years old to move onto a deserted island and catch koalas for a living. This koala, this island was called Snake Island. It was just off um, Port Welshpool, which is the closest inlet to Tasmania. Um, and there was 5,000 uh, koalas living on a 20-kilometre radius island. So the island was overpopulated. The koalas were, were dying and eating themselves out of uh, home. So the government came up with an idea to grab 10 volunteers to work with Parks Victoria and uh, a lot of rangers and live on this island for six months and catch and relocate these koalas to southeast Gippsland. So there was 10,000 applicants that went for the job. I was the youngest applicant out of 10,000 people. I just turned 17 years old and and I got the job and they hired six females and four males. and I ended up becoming the head koala catcher. So I caught we caught 988 koalas over six months. Um, and we used to just cruise around the wow. bush on a four-wheeler wow. and catch koalas uh, and put them in boxes and ship them off on a barge every night and they'd get relocated to southeast Gippsland. So we made a documentary out of it. Um, I was on the front page of the Herald Sun because I was the number one koala catcher and two of us, uh, myself and another girl got invited to Canberra to have lunch with the Prime Minister and the Governor-General and just talk about what we did and how we saved these koalas. So that was me. So if you went back to 1997, there'd be a picture of me on the front page of the Herald Sun with peroxide blonde hair and a black moustache sitting next to John Howard eating Atlantic salmon <laughs> at Parliament House. <laughs> what, an, what an experience as a 17-year-old. Most 17-year-olds most are... Just trying to get through high school or things like that, and deciding what they're going to do on the weekend. And here you are living on an island for six months, yeah, catching koalas and meeting the prime minister. Yeah, that would have been a great experience. Yeah, it was an awesome experience. Um, you know, so I'm 41 years old now, and I can still look back at it and and I remember it vividly. 
and it's really good actually. I had I haven't spoke to anybody that I did this with for over twenty years, and one of the girls contacted me only in the last couple of months, and she managed to find a lot of the old VHS videos that we had of the footage out on uh, on the islands, and she sent me a couple of clips of what we used to get up to, and it just uh, gave me a lot of nostalgia and reminded me of of those good times. It was a it was a really a really cool time. To, uh, and experience something like that, or not like not many people get to experience anything like that. And I think um, a lot of our listeners, when they hear this, like this is the best thing about the podcast: learning about some of the athletes in the group, about things they did before triathlon. Because we only really see people at training and hear about what they're doing in regards to triathlon or their life at the moment, but not beforehand. So this is a great chance for people to learn about you know yourself, but other people as well. Yeah, definitely. So. You come back, um, you had your 20s. When did you get into, as a lot of you people know in the group, that you run your own business called Strong Bodies, um, which is, you know, fitness, a lot of um, with strength and conditioning. Um, your partner, your wife, Joss, has a myotherapy business in regards to that as well. You do nutrition. But what led you to getting into this sort of um, industry? So I was always – I was always – really destined I think for this industry because I was so involved in sport from such a young age like we go back to being this you know I was into athletics quite deeply into athletics up until probably 15 years old football I played from 11 years old to I think my last game I played was 27 uh, and basketball basketball is probably where my fitness passion really flourished um, as I said I started from six years old and when I was 19 years old, I was playing uh, in the VBL for the Trove Valley Lakers, uh, then went on to coach uh, the VBL and also play in CBL, which is country basketball leagues. And, um, yeah, so I got pretty high up in basketball. Like we went back to talking about with um, my vertical leap was probably what got me as far as in basketball, but it wasn't going to get me any further. I was just that little bit too short uh, to get any further in basketball. But that's where the real passion for fitness really started off I think probably basketball was my my biggest passion and that's probably the one thing that I carried through the most later in life um up until uh yeah 27 years old and then pretty much got into strongman had a bit of a break for about five years in uh in the fitness industry and then jumped back into the fitness industry so I was always kind of in the fitness industry but never really qualified and then jumped into the fitness industry professionally when I was around 33 uh, and started competing in powerlifting and strongman competitions and just pretty much training uh, a lot of strong, uh, strongman-style training. Never had anything to do with endurance. If you ask me anything about endurance in my early 30s, I would have laughed at you. Um, I was just good at picking stuff up and putting it back down again. So let's, for the people out there that don't know what strongman is, can you just give the listeners a bit of a run-through of what a strongman competition actually involves and then we might actually talk about your training for it and things like that because I'm actually really interested in you read a lot about what calories need people need to eat for certain events and training and I'm really interested to learn more about that and things like that so what one um the strongman what did that involve and then we'll go into your training so strongman's pretty much um going back to ancient times so they try and replicate uh, I don't know what year Strongman started, but it's back in the in the ancient times. But it's basically um, using unconventional objects to pick up and carry or lift or hold on to. And they just 
they grow, they got the the powerlifting mindset, but then they just wanted to try and create different ideas of ways that you can show uh, a person's strength. So picking up rocks and how long you can hold rocks for and, or cars and just going back to the ancient times and a lot of the devices that they use in strongman competitions are from the Roman times uh, where they didn't have any options. And I think that was the biggest thing, that the draw card to me getting into strongman was the fact that it wasn't the, you know, the bench press, the squat, the deadlift. It was all these different fun old school types of things that you get to and tap into your inner beast with um, that really appealed to me about it the most. Um, powerlifting, I was good at powerlifting. I, had, I used to have really good numbers. So my deadlift was uh, 360 kilos and my bench press was 210 kilos and my squat was 340 kilos. So I had really good numbers uh, in powerlifting, but I just was bored with it. I just, it was three things that you train for. So I wanted to train for different types of um, events. And that's where I really led me into strongman. So let's have a talk about your actual training for strongman then, because the ones that I've seen on TV, you know, you are lifting big boulders or, you know, you've got to lift something, throw it over something over a wall or as we've seen photos of you lifting a car with people in the back. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about the training. How You wouldn't be able to do that every week because the toll on your body would be um, dreadful. So how would you train? Talk us through a normal maybe week of training and eating for a strongman competition. So training usually consisted of um, you'd select one style of event in a strongman competition each week and you'd target uh, different training routines based on that. So you'd have a still have a standard bodybuilding um, training workout. So I'd work out in the gym with different accessories and different types of equipment. But my rep range uh, and the weights were really determined by how much power I could output. So very rarely did I lift over six repetitions per exercise. It was about creating maximum volume um, with maximum rest. So I'd rest as long as I need to to be able to lift at 100% volume every time. Uh, and structure it every day. So I'd still do different body parts each day. But the whole focus of the week would be focused on uh, – this is how I did it. Everybody's a little bit different. But the whole week would be focused on one event. So whether it would be farmer's carry, a lot of my training would be focused on grip strength that week, uh, leg strength, core strength, and then the following week could be um, – uh, deadlifting or uh, farmers or uh, anchor hold. So whatever the event was that I was targeting that week, I would kind of wrap my uh, workout based on that event. But the thing is they all come down to um, grip strength and just being strong. So no matter what you're doing, as long as you're lifting heavy and having maximum rest, you're pretty much training for strongman. Uh, Food-wise, calorie-wise, I actually got into strongman because – I've ran gyms for a lot of years now and uh, and I've ventured down the path of possibly doing bodybuilding competitions, but I like my food and I don't like dieting. So I got into Strongman because you can basically eat what you want. You do. You are a very vain man. So yeah. I've seen you, you strut around a bit. Yeah. So I did have the possible thoughts come into my mind about yeah. getting in a G-string on stage and posing, but I, uh, I like my food a little bit too much to go down that path. So I... I chose strongman because it was about mass consumption. It's about being strong. You're either like I was always strong, so it just kind of suited for me to get into something that was um, relative to being strong and uh, and how much food you can eat. I think um, you know even competition some before competitions, it was nothing for me to eat a large pizza before I actually went out and competed. So 
Yeah, it was good. So lots of calories. There was no real structure in my diet. I know there's a lot of um, professionals out there in strongman that, and as as it evolves into strongman these days, they're a lot more uh, of an athlete. But the mindset that I had in strongman was just about how much can I eat and how much can I lift. Um, and how did you go in these strongman competitions? Were you winning, placing? So the last the last competition that I competed in. Um, was a, the national titles for the strongman competition in a 105 kilo weight class, and I came fourth. So there was a few guys a bit stronger than me, and uh, that was my last competition. So my highest ranking was fourth in Australia for the 105 kilo weight class. And uh, sadly, in that competition, I tore my bicep off the bone um, deadlifting. Um, so ended ended the career. Well, I decided to end the career then. I'd had quite a lot of injuries in strongman, but that was the one that took me out for eleven months. Um, so yeah, tore it straight off the bone. Um, you spoke about you had lots of injuries. What other injuries did you have while you were preparing for strongman and doing strongman events? So the two most significant injuries I had in strongman was um, I tore my left bicep completely off the bone. I uh, had to get it reattached and I was out of action for 11 months. And um, another another one preparing for a competition, did a heavy 300, I think it was a 320-kilo squat and went down and blew my L4 disc completely out. Uh, and when I say blew it out, there was no disc left, so it was just bone on bone. Um, came up out of the set. I thought that didn't feel right. Um, so I finished the workout, funny enough. I think I had a fair bit of adrenaline running and then 3 o'clock that morning I was in emergency because my body just kept spasming from the um, the damage that I've done and it was trying to protect me. So that was there were the two biggest significant injuries I had. The disc, the, the disc one still gives me a bit of grief now, but the bicep is reattached and kicking goals. Still actually it's funny enough though with the bicep tear that I can't wear my watch on my left-hand side because it creates too much pressure on my um, forearm. So you'll see me when I wear my watch, I wear it on my right arm and that's because of the um, the tear in my bicep. When I'm swimming, it creates just a lot of tension and stress through my arm. And we all know how much of a great swimmer you are. <laughs> so if, you, if you've seen a strong man in the water, you know how much of a great swimmer I am. I swim like a boat anchor. <laughs> <laughs> if you've seen Kevin the pool, he's always got his he's always got his woody shorts on, and he gets up and down the pool. In so that's the main thing. Yeah, and this is about the time you would have met Jocelyn as well, your wife. Yeah, so I met Jocelyn um, eight years ago, two uh, thousand and was that eight years? Two thousand and thirteen. I met Jocelyn. I was managing um, Anytime Fitness Croydon. Um, and went to an over 28 nightclub with a guy. I think it was a 50th birthday party that I was there and on the dance floor and saw this cute girl in black jeans. So I pinched her on the bum, turned around, and it was Jocelyn. And eight years later, we're still dancing together. And yeah, and you've brought the wonderful Noah into the world. And as um, a lot of your clients know, Noah likes to get in the gym and join in and uh, likes to sit on dad while dad's trying to do some exercises as well yeah so we'll move on so we've had your strongman you've had your last competition uh you moved into the geelong region and then you joined up with beckworth racing and what were why did we join up with beckworth racing at the time and did you think that you ever get as far as you have in triathlon so when i um 
when I first did my bicep, I, I decided that I wanted to go down the path of uh, doing another sport. And I, I looked at a line and it sussed it around and I got into triathlon. So before I moved over here, about six months before I moved over to Geelong, I started doing my own triathlon training. I went and bought a cheap bike and started uh, looking online and programming and that. And then when we moved over to Geelong, I thought it was I was at the stage where I needed uh, a coach and I needed some instruction. So I looked online and there was two options. Uh, there was two companies on, uh, online to choose from when I went to Beckworth Racing. And the reason I first rang Beckworth is because I liked his logo. I, I liked his colours and I thought I could see myself wearing those colours. So I rang him and we had a coffee down at the coffee the, hut, I think it's The called. orange and black. The orange and black. I liked the colour. I liked the logo. I didn't like the other one. I liked this one. So I... Um, I had a meeting with Adam and... As, as you know, Adam loves a coffee too. Loves a coffee, loves a loyalty card and loves a coffee. Uh, and he even likes it when you buy a coffee and use and he uses his loyalty card. <laughs> so I met Adam and... Um, oh, he, he, always, he always pays for me. <laughs> well, we didn't know each other then. So, but I think he might have paid then. I can't remember. But I don't think it was nearly five years ago now, but... Look, we met, we met, and I think straight away for me, I chose Adam. I knew Adam was going to be the right coach for me because I was such a gun ho athlete at everything I did. I never really had a filter. I just had to go, go, go. And and if you've met Adam, you know he's he's really the opposite to that. He's very calculated and structured in his approach to training and athletes um, training. So I thought this is the guy that's going to be able to rein me in a little bit. Um, and if you ask him, it was probably a bit of a, a hassle for him for the first 12 months because I was always questioning, you know, his programming because I wanted to do more and do more. And then and then the little soft tissue injuries kept coming in. And I thought, hang on, this guy knows what he's on about. So we started five years later. I'm still following his path and, uh, and everything that I've achieved in um, triathlon has got a big thanks to him, especially because he's managed to harness my, uh, my enthusiasm. And that's... The big thing, I think, also from a coach's point of view is when you do get a new athlete, he's trying to, you know, get them to slow down and, you know, they don't need to go and do six-hour rides and three-hour runs because they think they're training for an Ironman or something like that. They need to go and do all this training. And, you know, once an athlete starts realising, oh, I just need to follow the program, it does happen. The results do happen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and uh, and that's proof in the pudding. You know, the first, I think the first – Probably um, two years of my triathlon training, I had a lot of. I was also transitioning from strongman into from fast twitch fibers into slow twitch, so I had a lot of uh, weight to lose and a lot of conditioning the body had to do. So I really needed to follow a structured program. And, and in the first twelve months, I probably didn't follow it as way Adam would like me to. So I had a lot of soft tissue injuries uh, in the build up, and that was in the in the transition. Whereas if I probably followed him from the start, it would have been a bit smoother, but being friends with other triathletes. I saw the numbers that they were putting out there and I've always been such a competitive athlete. I wanted to try and get to the same numbers that they are, you know, not realising and not really accepting the fact that my past uh, athlete has nothing to do with endurance sports. So I wasn't only starting from the beginning, I was trying to reverse 20 years of exercise that is the total opposite to what uh, endurance sports are. Yeah, and you've had a massive transformation over that five years I think I met you five years ago and as you said you were you know 105 kilos you were competing in what was the heaviest did you get out to 111 so I'm five foot seven and I got to 111 kilos I think when I met Adam I was 103 kilos yeah and that's 
that's trying to push that around for, you know, 10 to 12 hours in an Ironman is quite incredible. But your transformation over these five years has been massive because I've seen it firsthand. Um, and you've, you know, you've taken everything on board. You do everything really well, so which is um, great. What was your first triathlon? Because I've got a funny story I want to tell about one of those triathlons you did. So my first triathlon was uh, Noosa, Noosa Triathlon. I told Adam uh, the first triathlon I want to do is Noosa. And, you know, as you know, it's one of the biggest Olympic triathlons you could possibly do and, and, and possibly one of the hardest in Australia Olympic triathlons you could do. You know, the weather's quite harsh. And we talked about me being a boat anchor in the water and there's no, uh, there's no wetsuit in the Noosa Triathlon. So I was going in unassisted, which, um, mark my words, I'll never do that swim again unassisted. I've been to, um, this will be my 15th year at Noosa and I know that swim that day, I've had, there's been two shocking surf swims up there and that was one of them. And I know that you were out in the water for an hour. And I remember you telling the story when you finished because we're going, why were you disqualified? And you go, because I missed the last boy. And I come in and the official said, well, you've got to go back out there. And you said, I've been out here for an hour and 15 minutes. I'm not effing going back out there. That's right. <laughs> and off you went. It was the hardest swim. I, um, I really suffered with motion sickness in the water, uh, you know, not being a strong swimmer. And when you're starting to sink, it's, it's, it's very intimidating. And even strong swimmers will say that, you know, some of the strongest swimmers can, can get intimidated in the water. Um, so I'm not friendly with the water. I am now probably. If I'm wearing a wetsuit, I am. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a very, very uh, tough swim and tough first triathlon. Um, another funny story with that triathlon is I came out of the water. I'd never done any triathlon. Come out of the water, got onto the run. I got on, no, coming off the bike, got onto the run, went through the first aid station and, the, and they were handing out cups and I grabbed the cup and tipped it all over my head, not realising it was Gatorade that I was tipping all over my head. So I got the cups wrong. Um, so that was one of my first rookie mistakes. <laughs> but, yeah, so try, Noosa Try was my very first triathlon. And you picked such a great event for your first one. I think all those people out there that you, if you've never done Noosa, get yourself an entry and get up there. It is one of the great events, especially when you finish and you can stand on the side of the road and watch everyone still going out on the run. It's probably one of my favourite days of the year. It definitely, um, you know, being my family being involved there as well, it definitely hooked us into triathlon. You know, even though I didn't, I didn't have a good race, um, I, you know, as much as a swim, I had an okay race, but I didn't have a good race. But just the whole atmosphere, the four days up there, it's just everybody is there about triathlon. Everyone's supportive, and it was just just leaves you wanting more and leaves you wanting to go back for more. I think I went back the following year and did it again. Uh, I haven't been back since. I've gone on to Ironman since then, but, um, yeah, love it. Love the whole atmosphere. I'd love to even just go up there just for the weekend without even the race. So as we'll move on then, because you've just spoken about that, you actually have moved on to doing Ironman events. Now, you've done two of them. You've done um, Port Macquarie and Bustledon in 2019. So let's let's talk about, now, again, you've come from a strong, strongman competition. You know, you're 103 kilos. It's not easy probably to lug your body around for 12 hours and having all those different injuries as well. Um, I know that, you know, you have a lot of, you have shoulder injuries with swimming and so you've done really well. So let's talk about your first Ironman Port Mac. How was, how was that? Yeah, so um, I've, uh, I've never really had 
um, a uneventful lead up to any race, unfortunately. So I've, I've got quite a few injuries. So I had a reconstruction on my shoulder when I was 22 that um, never really gave me any grief until I got into endurance sports and swimming. So um, I, I fought the lead up to Port Mac. I was fighting a, um, a bad shoulder and I was fighting a bad uh, hip flexor. So pretty um, crappy lead up, but uh, I always seem to find another 10% when I get into a race and I manage to race through with injuries. So my numbers really don't reflect probably what I would have liked to achieve, but I was going in with injured bodies. So Port Mac's an amazing race. I chose Port Mac originally because, uh, as you know, I'm not a confident swimmer and uh, 3.8 Ks is quite a journey for somebody who could, couldn't swim 25 metres when I first met Adam. So I chose Port Mac because it was I didn't have to worry about swells or anything like that. I could just focus on the rhythm of the swim. Uh, so that was really good. Um, on the ride, the ride was pretty crappy because I didn't really – I was at the stage in my training where I wasn't really listening to Adam. So I rode at 75 cadence. Uh, through Port Mac for 180 kilometres. So I just tried to muscle my way through the ride. And then the run, I actually had a pretty good run, uh, an uneventful run. I just got into a rhythm. I think all my races, I just get into a rhythm on my run and do the cliffy shuffle. But loved it. I actually loved it. It got me really hungry for Ironman racing. Um, and hence, that's why uh, I chose to do one six months later in Bustleton. Um but, yeah, definitely love the long stuff. I'm not a fast athlete in endurance. I wasn't in short stuff, in sprinting, but in triathlon I'm quite slow compared to a lot of others. And because I want to still be competitive, I chose to do the longer distances where it allows me probably to be a little bit more competitive without having to be as fast as everybody else and going back to, you know, trying to lug around, I think not just being 105 kilos in strongman competitions, but when you spend 20 years of weight training, uh, I think even today through body comp uh, scans, I still hold 47 kilos of skeletal muscle, which is a lot of muscle to be carrying around when you're running and when you're riding and swimming. That's massive. So when I get on a hill on a bike, I go backwards and when on a run, you know, it's just a lot of stress, a lot of stress through the body. So, yeah, love the long course. Um, and so you went to Bustledon and how was how that race for you? Another just get through or just... <laughs> it was another just get through. So I had a pretty um, – I, I think I <laughs> tore my calf. I tore my calf um, four weeks before the race of Bustleton. I had a grade two tear in my right calf. So uh, I was having a really good lead up up until that race um, and it was umming and ahhing whether I actually participated in that race or not. Even my shoulder was giving me grief. So my shoulder was giving me grief for a couple of years. Um so I don't even think, I think I swam twice in the lead up in the last four weeks of the race going up to Bustleton and ran, I didn't run five weeks or four weeks in the lead up of Bustleton, I didn't run. Uh, I could barely walk. I was um, getting treatments three or four times a week. Uh, the only thing that got me through the race was when we got there, there was um, a Normatec or uh, had a expo tent there uh, and they allowed me to take a pair of boots home for the weekend and I pretty much lived in those boots up until the race, I had heel lifts in my shoes to take the pressure off my calves and I ran the marathon on a grade two tear. So I had an awesome right swim. I swam, um, I actually swam quicker at Bustleton than I did at Noosa. I swam a 107 at Bustleton for 3.8 kilometres compared to my uh, 115 at Noosa for uh, an hour 15. So, um, yeah, had a really good swim. I had a really good ride. I, I rode a 540 at Busso, 
And then I, um, the run was always going to be the run. I had a grade two tear in my calf. Um, and because I had heel lifts in my shoes, I actually um, created blisters on every one of my toes, putting pressure into the front of my shoes. Um, lost, I think I lost four toenails and, um, yeah, it was brutal. But but I finished it. I got it done and I got it done 20 minutes quicker than I did uh, at Port Macquarie. So I probably could, have, probably could have knocked another hour off the run if I went in without a calf tear, but it was always just about finishing in the end. That's that's really quite amazing that, you know, and they, grade two tear, like most people wouldn't even be able to get out of bed or hobble around. Most people wouldn't go to work. Well, I was like that up until the race. The day before, if you asked uh, Wes and um, who else was out there, Adam was with me and Dave Proctor was there. I was, I couldn't walk up until the day of the race. I was the day before the race. I was limping, so it was. Uh, but I knew I was going to finish the race either way. I was whether I was walking or not, and I actually didn't really walk. I just jogged very slowly, but I was always going to finish the race. I wasn't, you know, what you've done an Ironman yourself, Gossie, that you put so much heart and soul into these events that. Just willpower gets you through. Yeah, it does. I think because um, when I did mine, I hadn't run for six weeks before, and you just get on the run and you just hobble around. You just get it done. And I think, yeah, the willpower that people do, like, and people always ask, "Oh, how do you do it?" You just go, "Well, you just do it. You just get out there and do it." And I think a lot of people put too many limitations in front of them, saying so. Um, and that's one thing a lot of people do know about you, Kev, is that you, yeah, you've got this never give up. You always give everything a go. Um, you've completed in not just Ironman events, but you've done lots of different trail runs and Spartan events and, you know, nothing's too hard. You'll just go, right, I'll give it a go. And that's, you know, one of your great – so you've done two Ironman events, but, you, you know, that's, that's not enough for you, is it? So you decide to move on to something else. <laughs> you moved on to Ultraman. What inspired you to sign up for this event? And talk about the process of actually signing up because it's not your normal race entry sign-up where you just get online, you know, put your, put your credit card details in and you get in. There's a bit of a process to actually um, be invited because you're actually getting invited to the, the Ultraman race, aren't you? That's right. So uh, when I uh, – the region, originally I decided to do Ultraman was – I don't know. I just <clears throat> like to do things that other people haven't done. As you said, I like to give everything a go and no one at Beckworth Racing had actually completed a, uh, an Ultraman event yet. So I was looking and thinking, what things can I do that uh, other people haven't done? And originally I was going to go over to Tasmania and run 13 marathons in 13 days and start a big donation fund for that. And um, it still hasn't, still haven't ticked, still haven't said I'm not doing that one yet. But uh, I was on the computer and I came across uh, this Ultraman event I thought this looks pretty epic. It's in Noosa. It looks beautiful. We love Noosa. I'm not doing the Noosa triathlon again, so what else can I do in Noosa? And uh, and one of the big drawing cards to Ultraman was that, as I said, no one at Beckworth Racing had actually done it. Um, so I wanted to be the first Beckworth athlete to actually participate in something like that. And I knew mentally I could push myself through an Ironman with injuries. So I, I'm put, the, the biggest draw card to me for long-distance sports is the mental the mindset uh, and just seeing how far you can take your mind and the body will go wherever your mind will let it go. So I chose the Ultraman event. I put in the application and to to get accepted into Ultraman, you need to have completed an Ironman in under 13 hours, which is pretty achievable if you've done an Ironman before. And you had to just put in um, why you think you'd be very, you'd be, should be selected to do this race. 
um, what's the reasoning behind why you should get selected to do this race because they only take, at the time, this was pre-COVID, they only took 50 athletes. So they had 247 applications and they took 50 athletes internationally, worldwide, uh, and I got selected. I didn't think I was going to get selected and I got selected. Um, but, yeah, it's still like every other race, you put your credit card details down and then once you get accepted, they take money off you, a little bit more than what an Ironman is. So it's quite an expensive venture, an Ultraman. But uh, for me, it was a bucket list. So, you know, you can't put a price on things like that. Um, got accepted. So how far out uh, from the Ultraman did you um, have to put your details and all that into selection? Was it the year before, two years? 12 months. So you get 11 months. That they, one month from the application started, they um, close the application and you get accepted and then you have 11 months to prepare for the race. Now, let's talk about uh, the actual distances in the, in the race. So as people know, an Ironman is 3.8 kilometres, 180-kilometre ride and a 42-kilometre run. An Ultraman goes over three days. So day one... Uh, consisted of a 10k swim and then how far was the first ride 145 145 yeah you can't remember you're only out there for a couple of hours yeah (laughs) just a few yeah 145 Um, kilometers then the second day is just a ride all day yeah 275 kilometer ride i think it was and then the third day is a double marathon day so 84.4 kilometers that's correct yeah 84.4 now with this there's also you had cutoff times in you each day yeah, so you had 12 hours to finish each day. Uh, if you didn't finish the day, you could you couldn't you could progress. So uh, people do progress, but you don't. You, you're a DNF. So you could uh, if you didn't come in on the 12 hours, te- technically you're not allowed to finish the race um, each day. So yeah, so and you know what, you need every bit of it. I think the training for this consisted would have been a lot of hours. I, I know you did a lot of hours on. Um, your turbo. Yeah. So let talk us through a normal – and you're running your own business too. So you're running your own business. You've got a young family. So talk us through a week of training for an Ultraman. Yeah. So the hardest – like you said, the hardest part about fitting the training in is when you run your own business and you have a, a young family, it's trying to make sure that everybody benefit, not everybody, anybody suffers throughout this whole adventure and it's a bit hard to do that when it gets into the peak of training. But trying to, um, you know, do 15 to 20 hours a week of training on top of running your business and still spending time with your wife and son, it's definitely a, a challenge in itself. And, and like, you know, with triathlon, if you're not doing triathlon, you're talking about triathlon or you're training triathlon. So your whole life is triathlon. And so your family really need to accept it, especially at that level of Ultraman, really need to accept the fact that you're going to do something like this and get on board and be supportive because... And I was very fortunate that my wife and my son and my parents were really supportive of the whole venture because I couldn't have done any of it without them. Um, they had to sacrifice probably more than I did because I was the one doing the work. I was the one still in, in the in the actual event or the training and the hype where they just didn't see me. Like I wasn't there for six hours a day or I wasn't there for 20 hours a week. So they were the ones that really suffered the most through the whole adventure. But um, yeah, it was hard. It was very similar to an Ironman prep. There was just a lot of rep, rep, um, repetitive days. So uh, Adam and I, Adam knew me well enough with my body to know what the best structure for training was for me. So it wasn't necessarily longer sets. It was just more um, double set days. 
So it might be a run in the morning and a run in the afternoon or a ride in the morning and a ride in the afternoon. So I was still getting the kilometres done, but I wasn't going out for long journeys because through experience and injuries, my body didn't really respond well to um, long, long sets. So what would be your longest swim you did, longest swim, longest bike ride and longest run leading up to the event in the training? So my longest swim was six and a half kilometres um, in a pool, in a 25-metre pool. So that was a lot of laps. Um, my longest ride was 210 kilometres. Did that take you about 20 hours? Or? Yeah, I had to take the week off work for that. Um, <laughs> my, longest, uh, my longest ride was on Zwift and it was 210 kilometres and it took me eight hours. I think it was eight hours. Um, my longest outdoor ride was 195. <laughs> so that's a long day. That's a long day at the office. And my longest run, um, I didn't really get up there in the runs. I think my longest run was 34 kilometres uh, in the lead-up to the Ultraman. So they would have, like, really, well, I had a bit of an interrupted lead-up. So realistically, they probably should have been a little bit higher. The swim was always going to be what the swim was going to be with my shoulder. Um, so six and a half k's, we were pretty pretty fortunate to get that distance in. And I knew if I could swim six and a half, I could swim ten. Um, the ride was uh, I was quite sick coming to the lead up. So right when we got into peak weeks, I was really I really didn't get to get those numbers that we wanted to get. So um, if I could go back on it, I probably wish I could have got a couple of more, probably three more peak weeks in. Um, but yeah, we just did we worked with the cards that we were dealt. And I think going through a pandemic at the same time probably didn't help your uh, training. No, that's the other thing, you know. It was very hard trying to, you know, indoor training through pandemics and the race was actually postponed 12 months because of the pandemic. So four, four and a half weeks before the Ultraman was supposed to go ahead, they cancelled it. So it moved it to the following year. So I did 11 months of prep and then had to do another 13 months of prep. <laughs> So the, my whole uh, Ultraman journey wasn't just 11 months. It was two years. Um, it absorbed my life for two years. Um, if it went another year, I was not going to do it. I wasn't going to go through that whole that whole thing again, um, just going back to the fact of how much sacrifice it was on the family and life and business and all those things. But, but we got there in the end. Yeah, you did get there in the end. So you're doing, you know, 15 to 20 hours of training, um, a long ride. How much? How much food are you consuming? Because we spoke about this earlier with your strongman. You would just eat. Now I know that you're a lot more calculated with what you're eating and putting into your body. So how much would you be consuming in a in a week like that? So the hardest part about um, endurance sports and doing the long stuff is controlling your diet because. When you're pounding the pavement or you're out on the bike for six or seven hours or you're swimming so much or 15, 20 hours a week of training, your body is constantly craving carbohydrates. Obviously, we know carbohydrates is the fuel that uh, is our body's fuel and your body is constantly craving it. And the hardest part about um, endurance sports is not giving your body too much because it just wants more and more and you only need to give it so much to, to perform the movements that or the exercise that you need to do. But psychologically our body's going give me more energy give me more energy so the hardest part was harnessing my my appetite uh and managing my weight throughout the whole journey because you can train 20 hours a week and still put on weight because your body just wants carbs and wants energy so on a long ride uh, i really relied on infinite um infinite supplements 
and that uh, was my main fuel source on long rides. So I would probably have about um, six or seven hours worth of infinite. Um, and then after after my long efforts, it was just carbs and proteins. Lots of, 50% of my diet was carbohydrates and 40% was protein and 10% was fats. But it was predominantly carbohydrates for breakfast, lunch and dinner and every other snack in between. It's just it's quite amazing. Um, I'm, I've only ever done one Ironman, but yeah, the amount of what you're craving is unbelievable. And even after you finish, like I've had weeks where I still would crave food. And you know, you're just all, always looking for something to eat. So you've done your, you've done your, you've done your two years instead of one year for training for an Ultraman. You've you've got there. Uh, the race was in May. Is that correct? May, um, I don't know, May 9th, 10th and 11th, wasn't it, I think? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So it was, it was, um, it was after, after Port Macquarie, Macquarie the Ironman, Iron which, which, again, another, another, another event, event that got postponed. postponed. So you went up to Noosa. When did you get up to Noosa? Because the race started on the Friday. So athletes had to be in Noosa um, by the Wednesday. So there was quite a bit of um, uh, expectations for, uh, for the athletes participating. So there was only 37 athletes, 36. Yeah, 37 athletes participated in the race because of the pandemic. There was no uh, no allowed of any international athletes. So 37 Australians. Um, I got there, the uh, left here, I drove up with my friend Troy on the Friday, the week before. So I got there on the uh, the Sunday, before, the week before the race. So I had quite a bit of time there to get organised and get settled in. Had to have my bike checked in by the Wednesday by a cert, by Trilogy Cycles, which is uh, one of the sponsors of the race. They had to go out, go over your bike and make sure you're right. Uh, on Thursday, I had to have the athlete check in and I had to go and get um, all my health and all my obs checked. So it's just not like a normal race. I had to get my bloods done and had to just make sure that I was in con- uh, the right condition to actually participate in the race and wasn't going to put myself or the race at risk by participating. And then uh, on the Friday, we, the race actually started on the Saturday. The ride, the, but on the Friday we had a, a, a pre-breakfast where all the athlete and all the support team got down, and they did a big race briefing over a breakfast with everybody. And quite a lot goes into this race. Um, there's no there's no road closures, or it's not like an Ironman race or any triathlon. You're very experienced. Um, you've got to supply your own support team for the whole race because there is no road closures. You're you're competing in. Uh, on roads and on footpaths with general population as cars zooming past and not only do you have to race but you also have to apply by all the road rules and the traffic lights and the roundabouts and all that stuff. So um, we had a quite a intensive um, race briefing to make sure that everybody was going to be safe throughout the race. So let's also talk about your support crew. You had Troy who went up there with you. You had Joss, Nathan, uh, Brian Benchoff, and the social media man, Adam, who I think spent more time posting stuff on Instagram than actually um, doing any supporting. Yeah. Well, that was his job. We made that his job. His number one job was to handle all social media for the weekend. Uh, look, he did a great job because I know all BRT athletes were enthralled with what was happening and being able to see it and watch you actually go through those three days was quite amazing. You had um, – so you had your – you know, your briefing, you've got everything set, set up. Saturday was the first day, the 10-kilometre swim. You know, as we've spoken about, um, swimming's not your forte. But you had Nathan Taylor um, as your supporter in that, and he was on a 
paddleboard? So Nathan uh, had to, um, so throughout the whole race in the supported race, I had to have someone with me the whole time. So in the in the swim, I had to have a, every athlete had to have a paddler on a board next to them, um, with uh, giving them their nutrition and just ensuring that they were safe, which was really good for me. Uh, it was probably the best part about the swim was I didn't have to sight at all. All I had to do, and Nathan was on my only breathe on my left hand side when I'm swimming, so all I had to do was keep Nathan in my sights, and we decided he was going to be two meters off me. So every time I breathed, I just followed him, and he steered me around the course. And, he stopped me every 45 minutes um, to give me a gel for nutrition. Um, but, yeah, we, I was very fortunate to have him out there. It's 10 kilometres is a long swim uh, and <clears throat> I didn't want to do it. I wouldn't have wanted to do it if I had to sight because it would have made it a hell of a lot worse, just knowing I didn't have to do anything except focus on my arms. And how long did the swim take you? The swim took me four hours and 20 minutes. Like coming out of the water, you, you get that taste in your mouth. I've also seen... A gentleman who swam around, um, I think he swam around the island of England, and his salt tongue. So how was your body after finishing that swim? So in the swim, we actually, um, when you normally wear a wetsuit, you have to put um, lubricant on your neck, but this time we actually taped our necks because the lube all wears off. So we actually taped all around our necks to, to stop the friction from the wetsuits. Uh, I also had lip balm all over my lips from the salt water. Uh, and Nathan kept me up with the fuel um, while I was swimming. But uh, that was the hardest part. It wasn't, a, it wasn't just an uneventful swim either. It was quite choppy. It was very choppy actually. Um, I think it got, would have got to about three-foot swells at one stage uh, with a shocking current. So it was a hard swim. I think I vomited three times under the water while I was swimming. Um, Nathan kept looking around. He thought there must have been a seal or something around, but it was just me making weird noises under the water. Um, come out of the water and it took me quite a while to uh, get my bearings and get myself vertical again because I'd been horizontal for so long um, and just wanted to get fluids in. So, uh, the, uh, yeah, it was tough. I didn't really um, – I think I vomited the most, which was two hours into my ride where everything just started coming back up from the water. So my body held onto it for two hours. Um, before it released it all. And then I went through a phase there on the bike for about 20 minutes where there was just salt water pouring out my nose and pouring out my mouth. And uh, it was beautiful. It was a great thing to see. (laughs) It would have been a great thing to see. You had a bit of time in transition. You got yourself set up. You got on the bike, 145 kilometres. Were you having one of your support crew riding with you or were they just in the car behind you? Talk us through that afternoon. Yeah, so the support team had to be in a vehicle. Um, they they call it the leapfrog technique. So each athlete had a support vehicle follow them and then the support team would get 10 minutes in front of them uh, and then give them any give the athlete anything they need when you ride past and then the, you, you, the support team would wait five minutes and then take off again and then get another 10 minutes up the road. So they basically leapfrogged me for the six hours. I think it was six hours I was on the bike for on day one. Um yeah, so it was 1,500 metres elevation on day one, so it was not an easy ride. We went up some really punchy hills. When I came out of the water, my heart rate wouldn't go under 175 beats. So I was riding on flat roads and my heart rate was through the roof. And in, if you've ever ridden in Noosa, you know there's some good hills there. So the first hill we had to attack was Noosa Hill. So I started the bottom of Noosa Hill with a heart rate of 175. So you can imagine what it was like when we got to the top. Um, I couldn't breathe. 
I was panicking. So we actually decided then I ripped my heart rate monitor off at the top of Noosa Hill and I spent the rest of the race with no heart rate monitor. I went on feel because it became a bit of a psychological thing for me. So I just went on feel and then I didn't have to really address it too much. So my support team followed me, leapfrogged me for the six hours and fueled me. They were giving me day one. I wasn't really hungry. They were just giving me infinite um, lollies and uh, we got the halfway point on day one and I still hadn't brought up any of that salt water so I wasn't feeling very well. And someone gave me a, a handful of lollies and in that handful of lollies was a black cat which I normally love black cats, but the black cat was what got the wheels in motion when to relieve all the salt water out of my body. So for the next 20 minutes, I um, got rid of everything. And if you ask my support team, the second half of my day one ride was my best probably ride of the whole race. I, I absolutely nailed it. I, was, I think I was sitting on 35 k's an hour for most of the second half of the ride on day one. Um, felt fantastic. Um, yeah, and then followed me all the way in and I finished day one in – I think 10 hours and 45 minutes in total. Just just inside the uh, cutoff time by an hour, which is good. Did you – you spoke about this. You had your heart rate. Did you – on the bike, were you just going to ride to heart rate or did you were you going to ride to power? What was the plan there? Oh, we were just going to ride to power. So um, my heart rate was never really out of it. It was out of the equation once I took the heart rate monitor off uh, and it was up and down. So we just decided to run to power and cadence. So – in my head, I just wanted to sit between 160 to 180 watts um, because it was just about being conservative. It was never about going hard like you would in normally other race. It was just about finishing and coming in on the timeline. Because I, I had such an interrupted prep for this race, um, it was never about breaking records. It was just ensuring that I came in under the 12 hours. So my, I was really fortunate that the guys that were in the car, especially Nathan, were so meticulous about the time I was on the bike that they were telling me what pace I needed to sit on to ensure that I came in on the cutoffs, um, especially day two. Day two was probably the most important for that but um, because we knew we, we were working, racing against the clock. Day one we had a bit more time to play with. Day two and day three was always going to be a bit more lenient on the time. So you finished the um, day one um, swim and ride. What was your recovery um, that afternoon when you got back to the um, hotel? So day one um, was probably the hardest uh, recovery out of all the three days because uh, we got back to the house and I'd had quite a bit of caffeine uh, out on the bike um, on day one. So my my body was tired but my heart and my mind were not. So I couldn't relax. I couldn't eat. I wasn't hungry. I think I had one slice of pizza or two slices of pizza after the race couldn't get anything in, went to bed at 8 o'clock and I got two hours sleep on day one. Um, I just, my body didn't want to shut down. So uh, it was just about getting in the Normatec boots um, and trying to relax myself as much as possible to get ready for day two. But unfortunately, uh, I had the absolute worst night on day one. I woke up, if you ask Nathan, I woke up on day two. He picked me up and took me down to the race at 5. I think we had to start at 5 in the morning. And I just said, I don't know if I can do this, mate. I have had two hours sleep uh, and I'm wired. I was still wired from day one. But um, wow, sure. Yeah, sure enough, Nathan got into my head and he was the the, the, um, the calm talker. And he said, no, nah, you can do it. That's what we're here for. So we got on the bike and off we went. So we're going into day two. Nathan picked you up. As you said, you're wired. You didn't think you could do it. 
what time did the ride start? It's the longest. It's a long day, two hundred and seventy-five kilometres. You say. Started at five thirty in the morning, and you've got twelve hours to get this done. Yeah, and it was um, two and a half thousand meters elevation. That's a lot of climbing over two hundred seventy-five kilometers. So you've started. You've got again your support crew. Um, again, there was some great footage from. I'm pretty sure from this day of you getting vaselined up. Yeah, <laughs> I um I don't know where we went wrong, but we forgot the um, chamois cream. There was no chamois cream in the car, so once the chamois cream wore off, we had nothing. So we used Vaseline and um, my lovely wife took the job of putting Vaseline in the areas that it needed to go and uh, it was very tender and very sore but, uh, but she did a good job. Um, we worked with what we had. I think, I think we ended up asking another crew who had some, um, <laughs> had some hemorrhoid cream. So we ended up getting some hemorrhoid cream and it's actually going back on that. Now if you ever do a long race, this hemorrhoid cream is the duck's guts. I will use it because it numbs everything. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was, uh, day two was uh, a long day in the saddle, two and a half thousand meters of climbing. Um, just some tough hills at the 180 kilometer mark of the ride. There was a hill that was about 20% incline and it went for about a K and a half. It was just, um, yeah, they really picked the hardest hills they could find. And not only that, the roads were not very, very good at all. They were hard bitumen where your drink bottle's shaking, your, everything's rattling, and it just kind of makes that ride ten times harder. You know, everything just hurts when you're riding. It'd be very physically hard, but what about mentally as well? Like you, even though you, you support crews there, you are on the bike for 275 kilometres really by yourself. That's right, yeah. So you don't see anybody. That's the other thing. So you've only 37 people in the race, and – Everybody rides at their different paces, not like a normal race where you've got people that you can sit behind. The, I, was, I rode the whole ride by myself. There was somebody I know after the race or at the end of each day that there was a couple of girls that were around me. They were always either five minutes in front of me or ten minutes behind me. But you were never, you were never riding with somebody. You rode the whole race by yourself. So uh, the support team were fantastic. And, and the a really act, a good thing about the support team is they recognised that you are alone a lot, so that leapfrogging technique might have become more frequent. So I knew that there was only a matter of five or ten minutes and I would be seeing them again. So they were in my ears, being positive, being on top of me, not allowing me to get into that, you know, that really bad space because there was some times that I was in some really bad places, um, but they were fantastic. I could, you could not do this race without a support team, I don't think. Um, you know what, there's probably a small percentage of people out there that can, but... Me personally, mentally, I needed to I needed to really rely on the emotional side for the support team to help me get through, um, because there were some really dark times, um, and energy wise, you know, these guys fueled me the whole race. So not like in an Ironman race where you go and you've got your drink bottles on your bike and you know that in every fifteen minutes you need to have two hundred and fifty mils of your drink bottle drank. Um, I didn't have to think of any of that. These guys in my car, they had a whiteboard and they were writing down what they were giving me at the time and knowing that when I needed to have it again. So I would pull up, they'd say, this is what you need now. I'd grab, I didn't even question it. I didn't even have to worry about any of that. All I had to focus on was getting A to B. That's quite amazing that they were able to do that. And I think that would have, yeah, as you said, it helped you immensely throughout the race to have them there and for you not to have to think because a lot of people that have done Ironman, it's, your body, 
will keep going, but your mind is something that once you get tired in the mind, you start to can really struggle, and that's when things start start stopping. That's right. Everything shuts down. Yeah, and you start making mistakes, especially at the back end of a bike ride with where the roads aren't closed. You you don't want to be making a mistake that could effectively stop your race, but you know might hurt you as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that can happen. You know, so even more. And the good thing about my support team was the more they realised I was down and out, the more they made their stops frequent to make sure that I was okay and. I was getting everything I need, and they were fantastic. Even with the fuel, some things, you know, when you're out there for 11 hours, Infinite only works for a certain bit. I think Infinite only worked for the first uh, four hours with me on day one, day two, and I started feeling sick. So uh, actually the back end of each day, the saviour for me on the back end of each day was Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola got me through the end of each race. One of the most underrated sports drink of all time. 100%, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I except for day three when I, we'll talk about your day day three drink that I love seeing. Um, so you've done that. How long did it take you to do the ride? So it took me eleven hours, eleven hours and thirty minutes, I think, on day two. Eleven hours and twenty seven minutes it took me day two. So I came in with thirty three minutes to go, which was really good because we thought um, we thought it was a two hundred eighty five k ride on day two. So we're all thinking that I wasn't going to come in on the time. Um, and then we came into um, Twin Waters and they said, you've only got 20 k's to go or 30 k's to go. So we're beauty. I've just dropped 10, 10 kilometres. We're on. We're going to make it. That would have been a great relief. And how were you when you got off the bike? Like we've spoken about you coming out of the water, trying to find your bearings now. How were you when you actually got off the bike at the end of the day? Look, I, was, uh, I was in better. I was in a better mindset on day two than I was on day one. Day one when I got off the bike, I was quite unwell. Um, my blood pressure was up and my heart rate was quite high like we spoke about. But day two, I was a lot more uh, in a better place mentally and physically. My legs were really sore. My hamstrings and my uh, hip flexors were really tight from being in a position for so long. But I was more welcoming to the recovery on day two. I got a massage on the table. I had massage therapists, five massage therapists for the athletes as soon as you got off the um, finish the race they would give you a massage a 30 minute massage so i uh i was a lot better and i was hungry i was really hungry on day two so it's just about getting as much food as i could in um to get ready for the day three and then straight home into the normatec boots into the spa uh and then tried to get in bed by seven o'clock at night so i had and i had a i had a better night's sleep on day two i think i had about six hours um so i was feeling a little bit fresher going into the run on day three so we're going into day three, the 84.4-kilometre run, double marathon. Now, for some people, just to run a marathon is a great achievement. So you've got 12 hours to do this. It was warm too, wasn't it? Yeah. So day three was the hottest day out of them all. It was 30 degrees and 94% humidity. Uh, at 5 o'clock in the morning, it was 90, 94% humidity. What time did you start the run? 5.30. 5.30. This one, you were able to have someone run with you? Yeah, so you had to have a pacer run with you the whole run. Uh, not There were certain parts. Um, so the first five kilometres of the run, um, running out of Noosa into, um, uh, I can't remember the next town, but running for the first five kilometres, you weren't allowed to have a support runner with you. So the crew just had to meet me, I think it was for traffic-wise, you couldn't have any cars going in and out of the town. So they had to meet me 5Ks out. So all us runners took off at 5.30 in the morning um, and we ran the first 5Ks by ourselves. And then 
Uh, my first pacer for the day was Brian Benshoff. He jumped on board with me uh, and ran with me for the next, I think he ran the first 17 kilometres with me. But, um, yeah, they were, they were fueling me the whole time, so it was really cool. How were you at the start of today, though? Um, a lot better than hopefully day two. Yeah, I was the best. Out of all the days, day three, I was the best. I was I was bubbly. My legs were tired, but I knew they were always going to be tired, and we trained for them to be tired. So I was up and about. I just wanted to get it done. I knew. I'd, I'd done the hardest part. Swimming was my biggest fear. That was out of the way. I'm not a big fan of long rides. That was out of the way. I knew that with a run, if, if things if the wheels fell off, I could walk and still get it done. So... I was in a pretty good mindset that we were on the last day. You've done the first, and people would have seen the footage, you've done the first marathon, the first half, and you've, you've had a nice little sit down, a little rest. Yeah. What was it like when you got to that turnaround point? So I was pretty unlucky going in on the run. I think 30 k's into the run, my feet swelled up through the mid arches um, and created a fair bit of bruising through my feet. So, um, And they, they call it foot drop. I had foot drop in my right foot. So the, underneath the, the navicular, I think it's called, uh, dropped on my foot. So I couldn't put any pressure through my foot. So it became quite a challenge to run. And that happened at 30 k's. So I had 54 k's left to run on drop foot. <laughs> um, so it made it really hard. So I was got into a bit of a shuffle and a bit of a limp with my running. Um, when we got to the halfway point, it was hot. It was so hot by then. There was so much fuel. I think we went and worked it out over the run. I, I think I drank around 17 litres of water or fluid over the run. It was so Sheepers. hot. And that's not including the Zupa Dupas, the Coca-Cola. On that, did they weigh you before and after? They weighed me at the very start of the race and then they weighed me at the end of each day. So at the end of day one, I had put on one and a half kilos, which they actually uh, they think that's pretty common. That was salt water. Yeah, probably. And then day two, I had lost 900 grams of that. And then day three, I didn't lose a single gram. I weighed exactly the same on the start and on the finish. That's it. That's, that's just a testament to my support team. They kept me fueled that well. That's that's brilliant. That's really well done and good calculations. As you said, they had the whiteboard working it all out. And your support team, we'll go back to you, Ron, but your support team had a wealth of knowledge. Like Nathan, three times, been a Kona. Brian, he's done 10-plus Ironman events. Adam's been in the sport for, you know, 25-plus years. And Troy's just a good bloke in general. Yeah, so, no, I don't know about that. But, yeah, no, he's a good bloke. He done a, Troy had done a lot of my running with me. But the wealth of knowledge in that car, especially with Joss, with her background as well, is just was amazing. Joss yeah. knew me. Joss, was, Joss knew me mentally. Yeah. Uh, and, and Joss knew my body. So as much as Jocelyn didn't really um, talk to me a lot, um, uh, Jocelyn's – my yin and yang. So whenever um, she saw me bit down and out, she knew not to come near me because I'd probably break down a little bit if she saw me. So she kind of drove the car and kept her distance from me throughout the race and probably took, just did a lot of talking in the car to the guys about what they should do. But she knew that she couldn't be too close to me throughout the race because I probably would have um, wanted a shoulder to cry on rather than a foot up the ass. <laughs> <laughs> so you've gone, you've sat down, you've got halfway, you've had these, you, you dropped foot, What's you're on the way? But what was the hardest part of the run? Like you've you've spoken about your drop foot, but is it you know they talk about in marathons you know getting to that thirty k mark and that's when the wheels can start falling off. Do you, did you think you were going to make it at this stage? So 
it's a bit different. I've, I've ran marathons and yeah, that wall, it's true, you know, 30 it's hit me at 33 and 34 kilometres. Going into an 84-kilometre run, that wall didn't really pop up at the 30-kilometre mark because I still knew I had so far to go. But when the foot started hurting, so from 30 kilometres to uh, I think it was 61 kilometres were my hardest part of the race. Um, it was hot. I couldn't run properly. Um, there was no real structure to my running format. I was just running till I couldn't run anymore and then I'd walk a bit and then run until I couldn't run anymore. So it was a bit uh, mentally it was really tough. And the turning point, the real big turning point was um, good old Nathan Taylor. He jumped on with me at the, um, oh, it must have been 50-something kilometre mark, I think it was, and he decided to put some timing into my running. He said, why don't we just run for four minutes and walk for one minute, run for four minutes and walk for one minute. Or I think it might have been four or five. And as soon as that happened, everything changed. There was structure to my run. I wasn't thinking about my pain anymore. I was just thinking about running that four-minute block. And he was telling me how long I had left. And the funny part about that was once I hit that four-minute one, four-and-one timing, I passed five people in the race. So their wheels were all falling off. So I think most people's wheels were falling off around the 60-kilometre mark. And I just kept knocking them down, knocking them down because they didn't really have any structure to their running. So a testament to Nathan put that running in there, that timing in there. And even, you know, going on to timing, the guy who came second in the run who ran some ridiculous like six hours, seven-hour run for the double marathon, he ran nine minutes on, one minute off from the start of that race to the finish. That was his plan. And he came second. So if I probably had that structure from the start, it might have been a little bit different. But um, I was feeling good. I thought I could have ran a bit further. Um, but, yeah, that was the turning point for me when Nathan said, let's do timing on the run. And I remember seeing some of the footage right at the end. And when you're coming over the bridge, I remember Adam going to you, only 4K to go or something, and you just looked at him and grunted. Like, you must have been. There wasn't much coming out. My foot was stuffed. I think by the end we got both. Adam ran the last nine kilometres with me, and we were down to two minutes on and one minute off. My foot was that bad. Um, I couldn't run for any longer than two minutes. It was just, it was just finishing. You know, my feet were hot. The body was drained. Uh, we knew we were going to finish. And, and running, running on, on you, you were running on paths. Running, running on, on, you know, those, those roads, roads. They are, they are actually, actually really, really quite, quite hot. hot. The, the, the heat that oh, comes yeah. out the road. the road. Yeah, it was hot. And roads. So we're running on the footpath. Majority of it on the footpath, and a little bit on the road, and a lot on the roads as well. But there was only probably. Out of the whole 84 kilometres, I reckon there would have been five kilometres that were sheltered. The rest you were out in the elements the whole time. And this is why you had a slurpy during the run. Is that, that correct? Yeah, yeah. So they gave me – they were trying everything. So it was uh, Zupa Dupas were working really well. Um, uh, so I was pumping the Zupa Dupas and then got to the halfway mark and Zupa Dupas started having the reverse effect on me. So I started vomiting them up while we were running. So they said, Let's, uh, give me a slurpy, tried the slurpy. And that, that didn't work very well. I think I got about three or four sips into that and then that went came back up as quick as it went down. Um, so we went back on to, I think we were on Infinite. Uh, Infinite is what we ran for the last part of the run that saved me in the second half of the run. Um, but we were trying everything. Like it was just a matter of let's, what can we get in fluids-wise. Water was just endless. Every chance I had, I either had water in my mouth or I was having water poured on me. Um, you know, I was out there for 11 hours on the run, so I needed to just – I was just trying to keep me cool, changing my clothes. Uh, I think I had three clothes changes, three sock changes. The uh, washing would have been massive. Yeah, you would have seen my car. No, it wasn't. The car that was driving, they were taking my clothes off 
and then hanging them out the window of the car when they were driving up and down and letting them dry. So when I got to the next point, when we did our next clothes change, just putting the same clothes on again, they'd just been dried. They would have stunk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was no, nothing pretty about me. <laughs> and just to top it off, you've, you've done your 84 kilometres of running and they decided to make you run down the beach to finish. Yeah, yeah. Let's make a guy run uh, his last kilometre on soft sand, which was an absolute workout. It was tough. It was tough. I mean, it was emotionally, it was good because I knew I could see the finish line, but it was really tough. And I'll tell you that the, the main thing that got me through was um, a few years ago, this race, because this race has been on for seven years or six years now, there's a guy who participated in this Ultraman race who had no legs, had no legs at all and competed in an Ultraman. Wow. And on day, on day one, yep. he, um, he, rode, he did the swim. No worries, did the swim by himself. He did the ride in his wheelchair. And on day three, on day two, he did his ride in his, his uh, you know, those wheelchair bikes. And then on day three, he didn't want to have any um, any advantages over the other athletes. So he did his run in a wheelchair with just his hands, just a normal hand wheelchair. And when he got to that sand, yes. when he got to that sand, he had the option of running down the boardwalk and he decided not to. He said, I'm going to be like everybody else. So he got out of his wheelchair and crawled himself along the sand to the finish line. So that guy was in my head for the whole race. If he can do it. He crawled yeah. his way. The last kilometre he crawled on his hands. That's amazing. To the finish line, yeah. And come in on the time too. Well, there we go, people listening out there. If that doesn't get you up and about to do something, not, mu- not much else will. And also uh, you got to run up the shoot with your support crew, which again was an- another amazing bit of footage. I th- the BRT squad chat was going off for three days, but everyone was just over the moon to see that footage of you running up the beach and then crossing that line with the, with the crew. Yeah, it's fantastic to be able to experience it with them. You know, that race wasn't just ran by me. It was ran by all of us. So it was really good to have those guys there with me. I was really lucky. I was just the guys that I ended up having the support team with were just the, the right – it was the right bunch of people. They jailed the whole three days. They all brought their own qualities to the race. They all knew me in these different ways, and it just um, it was awesome. Like it was such a such a good energy to be around and be together with and experience with. Um, I'll remember it for the rest of my life. So, any plans to do another one, or are we moving on? No, moving on. So, um, you know what? It's not that it scares me to do it again. I would, I would, I would do it again. No dramas at all. Like go through the whole prep. It's just a lot goes into it. There's a lot of sacrifice involved in it. And maybe it wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't over one year because it went for two years. It kind of really took a toll a fair bit in my life. So I just want to try something different. Um, I'll do epic things again. You'll definitely hear about some more epic things. Whether My next goal will probably be um, 160K run. I'm doing a run next year, actually. I'm doing a 100K um, Blue Mountains run, the UTA 100 with Troy. We're going to train for that. So that's 100 kilometres over 4,500 metres elevation. So that'll be um, my next big thing. I'm actually going to Alice Springs, hoping pandemic-wise. I'm going to Alice Springs um, in t- about 20 days to do a four-day mountain bike race called the Redback. So I'm going on with Brad oh, wow. Keating. Yeah, so it's a six-stage mountain bike race in Alice Springs we're going to do on the 20th of August. How um, is your mountain biking skills going? They're getting good. I'm getting better. I'm only falling off doing, two times per ride now. Doing the black um, runs? 
yeah, I've done a couple of blacks. I've done a black diamond. I've done a, I've done a couple of blacks. Um, I am getting better. I didn't. I rode yesterday and didn't fall off once. So that was. There must be things must be working in the right direction. But um, loving my mountain biking riding at the moment. Loving my running. So um, I will probably. I've got. I'm due to do the Ironman in Bustleton in December this year. And that'll probably be my last Ironman for a little while and then I'll just get into some other endurance. It'll all be endurance, but uh, I'll probably have a break from triathlon for a little bit and just do some other epic things. Well, Kev, on behalf of everyone and all the listeners, we'd like to say thank you for sharing your wonderful life and your journey, not into triathlon, but completing the Ultraman um, and taking the time today to talk talk to us here at the Gossip Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me today, mate. I was glad to uh, to share it all with you. And, um, yeah, really glad to be in part of the Beckworth crew and have you as a friend. Thanks, mate. No worries, mate. Thanks, mate. All right. We'll talk soon. Catch. Thanks for listening to the Gossip Podcast with your host, Anthony Goss. For more great episodes, please visit our website, www.beckworthracing.com. And remember, in the great words of Coach Goss, do something.